I certainly want to urge you to bring your Bibles Sunday morning, Sunday nights. It's a good habit to be into. All habits are not bad. There's some that are very good. And uh, hopefully you'll bring your Bibles. And I wish you, during these next six months, if you are interested in doing so, that you would bring a Bible in which you can make notes. The other day, I was looking back through an old Bible that I had that has been bound and rebound a couple of times. And it was the Bible that I took the first time I went to the Holy Land many years ago. And the notes that I made there in the Bible and the something of a diary that I kept on the back pages, the blank pages that nearly every Bible has on them, uh, the diary that I kept was especially meaningful to me because, now you may not be like this, but I have noticed that if I, if I don't write it down, I think I'll never forget it. I'll hear something or experience something, and I think this is so remarkable and so overwhelming and so meaningful to me, I can never forget it, but I forget it. It moves back there somewhere in my subconscious mind, and under the right stimulus, I might recollect what I had heard or what I read. But the best policy is to write it down. You may not need to write any more than just a word that will just trigger the association. Someone has said, you never really make an idea your own until you put either your tongue or your pen around it. Until you either talk about it or write about it. I think it's a very good habit to talk about ideas that we have, to share them with other people, and also to write them down, preferably to do both. We're going to be preaching through the life of Christ, and I want you to pray. This is an exciting and challenging thing for me. There's going to be left more unsaid than will be said. There's no way in six or seven months, 50 or 60 sermons or so, that you can begin to do any more than merely touch the hem of the garment becomes very difficult as we move on a little further because so many incidents take place and it becomes somewhat difficult from an interpretive standpoint to to decide what happened at a certain time. By that I mean the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John fit one another, they balance one another, but we do not have a diary of the disciples' activities for these three to three and a half years. In fact, one biblical commentator said, studying the Scripture from a day-to-day standpoint, that we have in the New Testament a discernible difference between the days in the life of Jesus. We have probably about 90 days of his activity chronicled. And we don't have the full activities of that day. Maybe only one incident, like the feeding of the 5,000, which all four gospel writers uh, wrote about. Many of the others will be recorded by only one of the gospel writers. But we have only about three months 
out of three years. You see now why John said if everything that Jesus said and did had been written down, the world couldn't contain the books. So we're going to attempt to move through the life of Jesus chronologically. And so I hope that you will have your Bibles. If you have a gospel parallels or a harmony of the gospels, then that would be especially, that would be especially helpful. I want to talk some more tonight about John the Baptist. I'm going to read a passage of scripture from the first chapter of the gospel according to John, beginning with verse 19. John 1, 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, that is John, who he was. He did not fail to confess. He wasn't hesitant at all but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. From Isaiah 40 third chapter. Some of you talked about that in Sunday school this morning. That was suggested as part of the reading. Isaiah the prophet's statement, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah? nor the prophet. I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. John the Baptist, this remarkable, unusual, dramatic 
exciting personality. I have a mental picture of him. Maybe you have a mental picture of him. I have a mental picture of him that would make one of the middle linebackers on the Oakland Raiders look look like someone suffering from rickets. I have a mental picture of a of a man of gray physical energy, dynamic, rugged, tough. Most of you are familiar with the announcement of his birth to Zachariah and to Elizabeth, his mother, and their advanced age. They had this child of promise who would be the forerunner. We hear nothing about him then except that he lived in the desert. Many, many Bible commentators and students believe that John lived in the, one of the Essene communities down around the Sea of Galilee, down in the wilderness of Judea. But he was not like them in the sense that he was a monastic. Most of these were monastic sects that withdrew because of the spiritual barrenness and depravity that characterized Israel. And they gave themselves to communal living, to prayer, to meditation, to a total withdrawal from life, much like a monastic priest would do in our day, taking vows of poverty, vows of silence, spending great times, periods of time in fasting and in study. They were not evangelists. They were not proclaimers. They were not prophets. They were withdrawing from life. Now, John the Baptist may have lived with them for a period of time, or he may have been greatly influenced by them and some of their writings, which are preserved for us to, to today. But he did not follow the pattern because John the Baptist was a man chosen of God to be a forerunner, a public figure, a man who was to be the announcer of the promised Messiah, one to be, as he said, the voice, the voice, the voice. Who are you? Are you a prophet? He did not think that he was. Are you the Messiah? No, I am not, he said. Then what are you? And his answer about himself? I'm a voice. That's all that I am, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, saying, Prepare the way of the Lord. The king is coming. The king is coming. The king is coming. Get ready. Repent. Change your ways. Confess your sins. Be baptized. And then here he is. Behold the Lamb of God. John's life then, brief though it was, falls into three rather distinct segments, three rather distinct periods. The first, that period of obscurity living in the desert, a loner, detached, observing the scene, aware of the profligacy that was rampant in his day, sensitive, perceptive. 
And then suddenly one day, he begins to preach. He had a very simple outline. He preached the same sermon over and over and over. One of the greatest evangelists in the history of the church was Jonathan, was George Whitfield. George Whitfield, co-worker with John Wesley. Wesley was not nearly the preacher that Whitfield was from the standpoint of great crowds coming to hear him. Great impact upon both England and America. Made 13 trips to the United States. Preached in America prior to the uh, American Revolution. Had a great deal to do with the establishment of many of the churches that were such a strong, strong, vital part of early American life directly attributable to George Whitfield who died preaching in America. Whitfield said that no man has ever mastered a sermon until he has preached it at least 40 times. That's something. No man, he said, has mastered a sermon until he has preached it at least 40 times. Well, John the Baptist would have agreed with George Whitfield. He preached the same message over and over and over and over again. Did any of you ever know B.B. Krim, the cowboy evangelist? Did any of you know or hear him? I never did. I wasn't old enough, but Dan and some others have told me about him. Uh, no, I, I heard him and uh, knew him, heard him in Waco, heard him in the Rio Grande Valley. He was one of the most remarkable men I've ever heard in my life. He was about six, four, five, wore big cowboy boots. He was just tough as he could be, but he was a remarkable preacher, a very gifted man, very stunning and very surprising, very uh, Texan, very John the Baptist in a lot of his demeanor and way. I remember he was preaching in a revival meeting in Waco one time when I was a student at Baylor and a bunch of us went to hear him and uh, wasn't much crowd there that night and the people were unresponsive and they didn't sing and everybody was kind of bored with the whole thing and it was just, uh, it was just pretty cold service and B.B. Krim, he preached and he never had a pulpit, he had sort of a hitching post. He, it, was, it was about this high and it was about this wide and he'd put his Bible on it or a lot of times he'd just throw his leg over it and he'd stand there and preach or he'd sit down for a while and preach and he'd hold up a chair. He was, he was a dramatic individual, to say the least, but a very intelligent man. But that night in Waco, all oh, the service was so dead and lifeless. B.B. Cram picked up his Bible and just walked, during the invitation, just walked down the aisle, walked casually up the aisle. They were still singing. Walked back to the back door of the church. Well, everybody there sort of lazily followed him and, Looked at him, oh, where's the preacher going? You know, I walked up the aisle and he got back there and he said, wave the minister of music, the song leader, and stop it. Everybody stopped and it had their necks craned around to look at him. He said, all of you go on, go to hell, I'm going fox hunting. He walked out, and that's the end of the service. And everybody got up and said, well, well, that's what he'd do. He, he was a big fox hunter. He'd take his dog with him. He'd have to pull a big trailer with his fox hounds. And if he liked you, he'd name a dog after you. That's right. 
Now, I heard him tell a story one night down the big tent in the, in the Rio Grande Valley. Got to talking about what happens when a hound starts chasing rabbits. They're no good anymore. Any of you ever go fox hunting? Oh, it's some kind of experience. I went fox hunting one time over in Mississippi, and we were getting ready to go, you know, and, and getting in the cars and everything. And Martha was there, and we were in a revival at Lexington, Mississippi, down in the Delta country. And Martha went out the car with us. She said, oh, you all, please be careful with the guns. Well, now, most of you obviously have never been fox hunting because you don't, you don't take guns when you go fox hunting. You just take dogs, something to eat, and a lot of lies to tell because you've got to sit around that campfire and tell lies all night long. You've got to tell the biggest story and the bigger lie than the guy who just talked in front of you. He was telling the story about this hound that started chasing rabbits. And he said, once a hound starts chasing rabbits, it's no good for anything. And he said, I called that hound up to me. And he said, I reached over there and I picked up a big club and I drew that club back. And a woman down on about the fourth or fifth row said, oh, no. He said, well, lady, I don't want to upset you, so I won't tell you what I did to that hound. I'll just tell you that he was not for God took him. What I started out to tell you about B.B. Krim was he took a church once. And he, he, couldn't, he was a pastor of a church for a while, and that just wasn't for him and probably for them. It didn't work out too well. But he was talking about it, and he said he preached 21 straight sermons on will a man rob God. Preached on giving, preached on money, preached on tithing. 21 straight sermons on one text, probably the same sermon. He just yelled in a different place every now and then. Same sermon 21 times on will a man rob God. And the deacons or somebody, some committee in the church called on him and said, Pastor, we just like, you know, we appreciate your preaching and everything, but you need to preach on something else. He said, when you quit robbing God, then I'll preach on something else. So they went on robbing God and got rid of B.B. Cram. But the point is, <laughs> 21 straight sermons. Whitfield, 40 times. John the Baptist had one sermon, and the first point in each sermon was repent. Repent. My friend, there's no use trying to clean the outside of the cup when the inside's dirty. Repent. Change your ways. Now, there are a lot of us who'd like to get to Christ without going through repentance. We'd like to hold on to all the baggage of unbelief and the practices that have characterized our lives. We'd like to get to Jesus Christ the teacher and Jesus Christ the friend and Jesus Christ the great example without getting to Jesus Christ through the agony of his own crucifixion on the cross for our sins, but there's no other route. You cannot bypass Calvary and be a Christian. And repentance is the first note of the gospel. A lot of us want to get to the Mount of Olives and the resurrection without going by Sinai. We want to be healed before we're wounded. Repent. Change your ways. 
John the Baptist said, Now the way that you show that you have repented and that the old man has passed away, a couple of things you do. One is you're baptized. And as I said this morning, that's nothing, that was nothing new in his day, but it was very new for Jews to be baptized. Only Jewish proselytes. That is, somebody who was not a Jew, a Gentile who wanted to become a Jew, was called a Jewish proselyte. They wanted to become a Jew, convert to Judaism. What did they have to do? They had to be circumcised, their hair cut, their nails cut, and they were immersed in water. They were baptized. But a Jew never had the experience of baptism. He did have the Levitical prescription of the water purification before certain religious observances, but not immersion. Only proselytes. The unique thing about John's preaching and John's baptism was that he was calling Jews priests and Levites and Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious leaders of the day saying, you fellas, even though you know a lot of religion and you know a lot about the furniture of the tabernacle and your authorities in the law, you need to change your heart. You can know the Bible, you can know all religious ritualism, you can know all about Christian ceremonialism and not be a Christian. We can sing the songs of Zion. We can pray like a saint but practice like Satan's. We can have the hands of Esau and the voice of Jacob. We've got to repent. First note in the gospel on the lips of John, and we'll hear in a few weeks when we come to Jesus beginning his public ministry of preaching, the first note on his lips, repent, repent. And baptism is a picture of the old man being laid in the grave and buried and coming out a new person. And here is John the Baptist standing there on the banks of the Jordan at approximately the same spot where the children of Israel had entered the promised land thousands of years before saying, all right, if you want to enter the real promised land, the kingdom of God, then you have to have your own heart changed. It's not just a matter of geography. It's a matter of your spiritual perception. Repent. So here's John the Baptist who had lived these years in the desert, just like the children of Israel had wandered those years in the desert. And John was saying the entrance into the kingdom, the entrance into the promised land of God is not just across this river, but that becomes a symbol of the old man passing away through repentance and confession, and you become a new person. Repentance. Confess. And then that third note, the one that John underlined, there's the lamb. Oh, what, a, what an association that triggered in the mind of those Jews. Thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands upon tens of thousands of lambs had been sacrificed up there at the temple in Jerusalem. Out there in that wilderness, they had sacrificed that lamb. Time after time after time, thousands upon thousands into the tens of thousands, probably into the hundreds of thousands of lambs had been slain upon Jewish altars. It was embedded in their subconscious. 
the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb without spot, the Lamb without blemish. The Lamb is a sacrifice for our sins. The blood of the Lamb is the covering for our iniquities. The blood, the entrance into the Holy of Holies, into the very Shekinah glory of the presence of God. John the Baptist said, there he is. Look at him. God's Lamb. Slain from the foundation of the world. Oh, how beautifully symbolic and appropriate. Who had attended his birth? Shepherds. And here stands John the Baptist to say, the little lamb born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, David's town, is the lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. Behold him. All of these fantastic, marvelous associations that these words triggered in the Jewish mind that was hearing John the Baptist that day. Something about, there are many things about John the Baptist that impressed me. One is the heterogeneous nature of his, of his audience, his congregation. Religious, irreligious, godly, ungodly, church-going, non-church-going, Because the desert was not just where John was living. The desert was right there in Jerusalem. They had a moral desert inside of them. Spiritually barren. Spiritually lifeless. John the Baptist had the same message for everybody. I admire that in him. He had the same message for the priests and the Levites and the prostitutes and the Pharisees and the tax collectors and the soldiers and the king. The king. When he got up to the White House of his day, he didn't trim his message. He said to Herod Antipas, you're living in sin and God will judge you for it. You're having sexual relations with your niece, your brother's wife, and he's still alive. Repent. And flee from the wrath to come. I suppose all of us are aware of the temptation to sort of minimize the seriousness of the gospel when we begin to apply it in private to people that we like and that we know or to people who are famous and powerful. John the Baptist didn't trim his sails simply because he happened to move into Herod's court. Peter Cartwright was a famous evangelist back many years ago in America. Sort of a strange character in some ways, kind of like John the Baptist. He only had one eye. He'd lost that in a fight before he was converted. He was preaching one time in Kentucky during the great Cumberland Revival. Someone came to him and said to him, President Andrew Jackson is in your congregation. And he got up and he was preaching along and he said, they've told me, the President Andrew Jackson is in the congregation tonight and I want to say to him 
like I say to anybody else, he's got to be born again just like any other sinner. Andrew Jackson liked him. Same man in the palace as he was out there on the banks of the Jordan. Herod, you're living in sin. And you're under the judgment of God. Well, kings in his day were potentates. They had the power of life and death over anybody. So he threw John in prison. By the way, this is the same Herod that Jesus later called the fox. The fox, tricky one. Now I know the 13th chapter of Romans says that we're to pray for those in authority, and we are to pray for those in authority, but my friends, our prayer for those in authority doesn't mean that we're to compromise the message of God as it applies to those in authority, and we're to preach to them just like anybody else. They put their pants on one leg at a time, just look like you and I, and they've got to stand in their own shoes before the judgment bar of God, just like everybody else. Pray for those in authority, yes sir, but that doesn't mean not to declare the full counsel of God and the whole word of the Lord as it applies to them. So Herod's wife, or the Herod's well, Herodias, who was having an affair with, didn't like John the Baptist. Herod, Herod was embarrassed by him. Didn't want him preaching. Locked him up in prison. And you know the story of Herodias' daughter dancing an exotic dance. And she asked for the head of John the Baptist. We'll come back to this incident later on in the life of Jesus because he goes back down there to the Jordan about the place where he was baptized about the time John was in prison. Jesus said, that's the greatest man ever born of woman. John the Baptist. Strong, courageous, forthright, positive. He's a second cousin of Jesus, probably never met him. Seems to say that here in John, that he'd never seen him or known him personally. And he died when he was 30 years of age, maybe 31. Had his head cut off. Just preached for a few months. Weird, eccentric, wearing those odd clothes and eating that strange diet, standing out there calling everybody a bunch of snakes and telling them to get right with God and to repent, confess their sins, and be baptized and start living a good life, give your money away to help other people and quit overtaxing people and you be fair with people and you be honest with people. You take your religion right back there into the streets and the places of business and the places of government. John was no ascetic. He was no monastic. He believed the religion was to be walked out and lived out and expressed in the daily affairs of life. 
30 years of age, his head cut off. Well, better to live 30 day, 30 years. Be faithful to God. Go to heaven. Be called the greatest man ever born of woman or the son of God himself. Better to do that than to live to be 80 and go to hell. Compromise your convictions. Betray your own principles. Be traitor to your own commitments. John the Baptist was in prison. He sent word to Jesus by his disciples. He said, are you the one that should come or do we look for somebody else? There's a statement in the Sunday school literature, maybe it was not in yours, but the, a lot of the literature today, the lesson today was on John the Baptist and one phrase that was used was that John the Baptist was a doubter. I take issue with the writer of that lesson. John the Baptist was no doubter. He was a questioner. That's not doubting. That's not doubting. Just asking questions. That's the way you learn. That's the way you gain insight. Asking the question. How, why, what? That doesn't mean you doubt. John the Baptist didn't doubt. He just had a question. He didn't doubt that God was going to send the Messiah. He didn't doubt that God was going to redeem the world through the Lamb of God. He didn't doubt that at all. He just questioned whether or not you're the one. Jesus doesn't seem to be going the way that I'd hoped it was. Or maybe down there in Herod's prison he was discouraged and disconsolate but whatever the reason, John the Baptist, no doubter, but a questioner. That's the only way you and I will ever learn. That's the only way you and I will ever grow, is to ask questions. That's not a synonym for doubt. John did not doubt the purposes of God. He did not doubt the promises of God. He did not doubt the provision of God. He just wondered if that man was the person of God or if somebody else was going to come because somebody's coming. I know it. Are you it? Are you him? Or do we look for somebody else? That's not doubt. There's a lot of faith in that kind of questioning. John the Baptist was martyred. Jesus began his public ministry. And Jesus' first disciples all came from John the Baptist. Jesus' first disciples have been John the Baptist's disciples. And when John the Baptist said, there he is, follow him. He must increase and I must decrease. Follow him. And they did. And may we. Let's stand to our feet and bow our heads. And now, dear Lord, may your message, the truth of your word, and the example 
of this fantastic man bring forth fruit in my heart and my life and in the heart and life of every person present. May we be men and women of courage, of commitment, of uncompromising devotion. May we be seekers after the truth and proclaimers of the Lamb. Help us to be more like John the Baptist. So maybe in time, we will become increasingly like you. For your sake, we pray. Amen.